Well, good morning. It's great to be here again at Doxa with my Doxa family. I've preached here twice before. I've been here on a number of occasions. And as Justin just alluded to, we do believe that the church is a family. We believe that Jesus temporarily gave up his place in the family. The father turned his face away so that we could be included in the family by faith. And when I come here, I really do feel like family. I am a friend of Jeff's. We served Soma Tacoma together for eight years before he moved up here to serve this church family. In the last two times that I've preached here, the Holy Spirit's been very faithful to give me some key things to share with you. When I preached last time, it was July 2015, I preached out of 1 Peter 4 on the three characteristics of God's family. A few months before that, in April 2015, which was only four months after Jeff came, I preached from 1 Peter chapter 1 on joy in suffering. And the Holy Spirit used those talks to encourage and bless me. And by his power and grace, he used them to encourage and bless this church family as well. So a few months ago, when Jeff asked me to come and preach today, I started praying, asking the Holy Spirit, I said, what do you want me to talk about? And the first phrase that I heard was, the deceitfulness of wealth. And I said, um, Holy Spirit, um, are, you sh- are you sure that you want me to leave Tacoma and go to Bellevue and talk about money? And he said, yeah, yeah, I want you to do that. And I said, I kind of think they like me, though. Um, we've, we've had, you know, a couple good times together, and you're going to ask me to, like, talk about money. And he said, you know, I, I want you to do this, son. I love you, and I love this church family here in, on the east side, and I want you to go and talk about this. So I called Jeff and talked with him, and he said, yep, yeah, if that's what God's putting on your heart, then go for it. And I'll be honest with you, for a lot of my life, I have had a pretty significant struggle with the fear of man. I want people to like me. I want people to like me. And coming to the east side and talking about money is maybe not the best way to make friends. But here I am, opening God's word, talking about a topic that Jesus talked about more than any other topic. And I believe that this morning the Holy Spirit has something for you as a church family And I also believe that he's calling me to step out in faith. In the last year, he's been doing a lot of work in my heart on this issue of the fear of man, bringing a lot of healing. And so, honestly, I'm excited to be here and to to take this step and say, Dad, if this is what you want me to do, I want to do it. Before I pray, I want to say a word to those of you who might be new. Maybe you're relatively new to to this church family. You're still trying to figure out if this is where you're going to land. Maybe this is your very first Sunday and you're thinking, oh, great. I got here when this, the the not regular pastor guy is going to talk about money. Like, that's like two strikes. Well, I just want to encourage you. God doesn't need your money. And this church's faith is in our Father God as our provider. So the main concern is not money. The main concern is the hearts of people. That's the main concern. Because Jesus talked about money as a discipleship issue. And so if you're a follower of Jesus already, or you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're here in this room on a Sunday morning, like God's, God's drawing you in, I believe. So one way or the other, this topic of money is important for us as those who are either following Jesus or curious about what it means 
to follow Jesus. But just relax. We're not going to pass the offering plate three times today. This is not trying to get you to pull out your wallet. I want to pray and ask for God's help. Holy Spirit, please lead in these coming minutes. Jesus, I believe you're here in the room right now. We are gathered in your name for your glory, and you said that you'd be in our midst. So would you move around the room? Would you tap us on the shoulder? Would you whisper in our ear? Would you nudge our hearts? Would you move us? Would you convict us? That is all work that only you can do. Holy Spirit, this is a supernatural endeavor that you have asked me to engage in, and I enter into it by faith, and I pray that you would carry the words from my mouth to the hearts of people, and that the seed that is sown today would germinate and bear good fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that phrase, the deceitfulness of wealth, that the Holy Spirit dropped into my ear comes from a parable in Matthew chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 13. This is one of Jesus' very familiar parables. It's also found in Mark chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 8. It is the parable of the sower. We're going to read through the parable first and then Jesus' explanation of it. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. Have you ever tried to plant a garden on a sidewalk? Doesn't work out too well, does it? No, the birds came and devoured the seeds. Other seeds fell on rocky ground. How about planting a garden on a gravel pathway? How's that work out? Not so good. Where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns. Okay, how about a vacant lot that's filled with blackberry bushes? Good place to plant a garden? Not so much. The thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil. Okay, how about a raised bed filled with fresh topsoil? It's a good place to plant a garden. They produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And now verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and that is the seed that the sower is sowing, the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. There's the phrase, the deceitfulness of wealth. Another translation says, choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold. In another, sixty. 
and in another, 30. So the sower goes out and he sows the word, sows the word of God, sows the word of the kingdom, he sows the good news of the gospel, and Jesus is concerned with what happens when that seed hits the soil. Jesus is concerned not just with the germination of a plant, but with what all plants are designed to do, which is bear fruit. Jesus is concerned with whether or not the seed of the gospel is taking root in our lives to the degree that it actually bears fruit. See, our faith always works itself out in our actions. You've got this Relate series coming up. What we do flows out of what we believe about who God is and who we are. That's saying the same thing. What we believe always shapes how we live. Jesus wants to know when the seed hits your heart, is it going to germinate and bear fruit? Is there any evidence in your life and in my life that we actually believe the gospel? Well, what kind of fruit does Jesus have in mind? Later on in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, which Paul wrote to a local church, he describes a handful of these, these fruits, these evidences that the seed of the gospel has taken root and is bearing fruit in your life. What kind of fruit are we on the lookout for that would suggest that there's real faith in the gospel? Paul lists things like love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul says the, these, the presence of these fruits in your life and in my life are evidence that the foot of faith has landed on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ rather than in some other place. See, there's fruit hanging on the tree of all of our lives. What does that fruit indicate about the nature of your faith and my faith? We have often chosen something other than Jesus to place the foot of faith on. Something not as firm as the foundation of Jesus Christ. Tim, Call Tim Keller calls these things functional saviors. A thing that we hope in to give us salvation. And in Matthew's account here of Jesus telling of the parable of the sower, we have one of these key functional saviors that we're going to talk about. In verse 22, he says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and make it unfruitful. In Mark's version, he says, the others are sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now friends, this is a big deal what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying that money comes into our lives and money tells lies. The deceitfulness of wealth is the thing that chokes out the word of God making it unfruitful. So if we believe the lies that money tells we run the risk of being unfruitful as followers of Jesus and maybe even wandering away from the faith. Now, I think money tells all kinds of lies. Today, we're just going to talk about two. The first one is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
Paul is writing to a young pastor named Timothy and giving him some encouragement in how to lead and shepherd his people. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, which means proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, first of all, who is Paul talking to? The rich in this present age. Who is that? It's not just the 1%. That's not who Paul has in mind. In fact, I would suggest that Paul has in mind, by saying the rich in this present age, he has in mind almost every person in this room and maybe every person in this room. By global standards, we are all rich. For example, did you have to decide what to eat for breakfast this morning? If you had to decide what to eat for breakfast this morning, then you are rich. Because if you're poor, you either didn't eat breakfast or you ate the same thing that you eat every single day for breakfast. How about this? Did you have to decide which pair of shoes to wear today? If you did, then you're rich. Because if you're poor, you either do not have shoes, or whatever's on the bottom of your foot has been there for years, and you've only got one of them. Or how about this? Did you drive here in a car? Did you have to decide which car to drive? If you did, then you're rich. Because if you're poor, you do not have a car. You might have a bicycle or a motorcycle on which you place all eight members of your family. Seriously. And you certainly do not have multiple cars. We are rich. So this passage is for us. Now what's the source of these riches and the nature of these riches? Well, Paul says... In verse 17, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So where do the riches come from? They come from God. And, and are they good? Yes, they're good. See, it, we're, we're rich in this present age, but please don't feel guilty about that. God in His sovereignty has allowed you to be born in the country you have, have the job you have, have the resources that you have. That's not the point. See, people often misquote the Bible and say that money is the root of all evil. That's not true. Just a few verses earlier in 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, God neither promises that we'll be rich, nor commands that we be poor. God neither promises that we'll be rich nor commands that we be poor. The question is not, should we have money? That's not the question. Should we have money? The question is, should money have us? So where are we to put our hope then, as those who are rich in this present age? Well, Paul says, don't put your hope in riches. Don't let the foot of faith land on the, the uncertain, shaky, sandy soil of riches. Rather, place the foot of faith in God. 
He's addressing a lie here. And the first lie that money tells is this. I will give you security now and in the future. That's a lie that money tells. I will give you security now and in the future. Shortly before the great stock market crash of October 1929, one economist famously proclaimed, stock prices have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. In other words, our wealth is quite secure. He could not have been more wrong. In the great crash, the Dow lost 25% of its value in two days. And it was the beginning of the decade-long Great Depression when unemployment rose as high as 25% and more than 5,000 banks failed. And yet despite this recent, very clear evidence within our own country of the uncertainty of riches, if you Google financial freedom or financial independence, you'll find everyone from Charles Schwab to Dave Ramsey talking about how managing your money can give you freedom and independence. Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying money will give you security now and in the future. But where does Paul tell us to put our hope? He tells us to put our hope in God. I think there's at least two reasons. We find them both in the Gospels. The first, I want to summarize Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says you can't serve two masters, therefore don't worry about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, where you're going to live. The Father knows your needs before you even ask. The Father clothes the flowers of the field in beauty. He feeds the birds of the air. He loves you way more than those things. And He knows your needs before you even ask. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. So the first reason why we should put our hope in God instead of the uncertainty of riches is because we have a loving Father who knows our needs and He's with us. Now listen, there's very little I could tell you more than, than this. If, if you don't know the presence of a loving Father, you're going to worry about provision. You're going to be anxious. Jesus says three times in that passage, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. If that's all we said, that's a moralistic message. That's not the message of Matthew 6. The message of Matthew 6 is you have a loving dad who is with you and he knows your needs. So the next time you're at the dining room table with your pile of bills and your smaller pile of money and you're worried and you're going, who is going to help me? Who knows about this? Nobody even knows. God knows. Your Father knows and He cares. The second reason to put our hope in God, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now here's the crazy thing. As believers in Jesus, those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus, we're saying that we believe that the Father has provided for us to such a profound degree, like He's met our biggest need he, he paid our debt that we could never pay, right? There's a need we had we could never work hard enough, save enough, invest enough, be smart enough to meet that need, that spiritual need, separation from God. But through Jesus Christ, we're saying that need has been met and I'll trust Him now for all eternity, but I can't trust Him to pay my bills. Do you hear how like crazy that is, frankly? I'll trust God for my eternity, but I won't trust Him for my today and my future. 
But the Father is saying, look, not only am I with you and I'm present and I see you and I love you, I've actually given you the thing that meets your biggest need already. Romans 8.32 asks a rhetorical question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The Father loves you. He knows your needs. And some of you might say, yeah, but you know, the Bible also teaches that we should be wise. And we should save our money up for the future. And that's true. The book of Proverbs extols the virtues of saving for the future. But the book of Proverbs also says in chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. What's a strong tower? It's a castle. It's a place where you hide when you're under attack. It's a stronghold. It's very safe and secure. It's a fortress. And Proverbs says, righteous people run into God. The name of the Lord. Relationship with God. Hiding in the very person of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where you hide. That's your fortress. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his imagination. So even though the book of Proverbs extols the virtues of saving and planning for the future, it still is very clear. Do not put your hope for today or the future in the uncertainty of riches. So you think back to that list of the fruit of the Spirit. Peace is one of them. And I want to ask, is the peace in your heart affected at all by your checking account balance? Is the peace in your heart affected at all by the daily numbers from Wall Street? Is the peace in your heart affected at all by your quarterly 401k statement? If it is, then I would suggest that that thorn, that blackberry bush of the deceitfulness of wealth has some kind of a root in your heart. And I face it too. I face it too. The deceitfulness of wealth has sprung up and is choking out the vine of the gospel in your life. And you're lacking fruit. And we're going to talk in the end about how to address these weeds. But I want to move on and talk about the second lie. It's found in the book of James. The book of James, towards the back of the Bible. James was the brother of Jesus and yet humbly introduces himself in the beginning of the book as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 and then also verses 14 through 17. James says, My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, hey, stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions? Some translations say discrimination amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? 
Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And then verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now first of all, James is not contradicting Paul, who loves to sound the trumpet of salvation by grace through faith alone. James is not saying it's faith and works that save you. James is saying the same thing Jesus said in the parable of the sower. That if the seed of the gospel is taking root in your life, we should expect that it would bear fruit. That that fruit would be evident. That's what James is saying. There's some other teaching of Jesus that's the backdrop for what James is saying here in this passage. Particularly what James said in Verse 5, about God choosing those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. Remember Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And remember Jesus' famous words in Matthew 19, 23-24. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you again, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I'll be honest with you, that is very sobering for me as a person who wants to tell other people about Jesus in the United States of America. It's probably particularly sobering for those of you who live here on the east side. We live in a place where there's a lot of hard soil and a lot of thorny soil. Jesus says it's really tough for a rich person to trust in Jesus. But here's the good news, God can change hearts. He can change hearts. He can till up the soil of a hard heart so the seed of the gospel can be planted and germinate and grow and bear fruit. So Jesus is saying for him and for his followers, he believes we should give special emphasis to serving the poor because they are almost always dishonored. Think about the history of the world. Poor people are almost always dishonored. Jesus is saying give them special attention, special service. Proclaim the gospel to them. But secondly, he's saying the poor are more aware of their spiritual needs. Typically. It's not always true, but generally that's true. See, physical needs are a picture of our spiritual need. When we have physical needs, we're more aware of our spiritual need. And Jesus is saying, because that's true, think about the poor. But then also consider this picture of like this church gathered And two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus. Where's Jesus? In the midst of them. And what's he doing? He's walking around. He's going, that's my brother. That's my sister. I died for her. I died for him. Regardless of how they're dressed or what they look like, what their socioeconomic status is, what their age is, what their race is, Jesus is walking around the room saying, that's my sister. That's my brother. That's my sister. That's my brother. I love them. But what what are the people in the room doing? They're showing partiality. They're showing favoritism. They're showing discrimination. See, James is confronting a second lie that money tells, which is this. I give people worth, value, and significance. 
That's the second lie that money tells. I give people worth, value, and significance. I think a simple walk through downtown Seattle will demonstrate the fact that all of us uh, ascribe worth and value to people partly based on our assumptions about things like socioeconomic status, age, clothing, even height, appearance, attractiveness, all these things. We're sort of walking around all day like ranking ourselves and some people we feel more superior towards and other people we feel inferior towards. And I think underlying this is this lie. Money gives people worth, value, and significance. Now James and Paul both address a specific way to get at this lie that says you are worth more than other people because of what you have. James and Paul both give us sort of an antidote to this problem, a way to like pull the weed, a way to spray some roundup on this, this thorn. And that's to give your money away. To give your money away. Our faith always works itself out in our actions. And if we believe that money is like a life preserver and we are in the middle of the ocean and we don't know how to swim, but fortunately we found this life preserver and it's going to save us. If we believe that about money, are we going to give it away? No way. No way. But if on the other hand we, we move the foot of faith over to Jesus Christ and we, we realize that he's way better than a life preserver. He's like, he's like a Coast Guard helicopter who flies over us and he's got one of those buckets that they drop down to like scoop up people out of the ocean. But Jesus says, first, if you want to get scooped up into the bucket of my salvation, you have to get out of the life preserver because I can't scoop you up if you're in a life preserver. You can't have it both ways. He said, you can't serve God in money. So imagine being a drowning person in the middle of the ocean, you can't swim and you like get out of your life preserver, but then you're actually rescued. Because the life preserver wasn't going to save you. It was just going to keep you from sinking. But that helicopter saves you. So when we give our money, it's like we're saying to the money, we're saying, this is a way to confront the lie, according to both James and Paul. It's a way to say, you don't give me significance. You don't give me worth and value. I'm free to give you away. You're not my savior. I can be generous. You don't give me security. I can give you away. I can be generous. Giving is a specific, concrete way to confront the lies that money tells. I want to talk specifically about giving in two different ways. I think if we look at the whole of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, I believe the two biblical priorities for giving are, number one, give to your local church, and number two, give to the poor. There's other great things to give to. I think those are the top two priorities. If we consider all of the Bible, number one, give to your local church. Give to the work of God through the people of God. And then secondly, give to the poor. So first of all, giving to your local church. Again, if you're new here, if you're not a part of this church family, then what I'm about to say, honestly, doesn't really apply to you. If the Spirit of God is convicting you and leading you and you want to take action on that, that's great. But for those who call Doxa home, for those who are part of this church family, I want to encourage you, please be faithful and obedient to do what the Spirit is leading you to do in terms of giving to support the work of this local church family. Okay? That's one of the great things about like, being a quote-unquote guest speaker, is I can come and I can say, please give to this church. And you know, like, I don't have any real skin in the game. Okay? I believe this is biblical. I believe this is biblical. 
Give to your local church. So, but I also want to say something super important here. We don't give to try to get. We give because God gave first. So your giving to your local church, my giving to my local church, listen, this is God's heart on this. He wants it to be a response to grace. Okay, so this is not a yoke. This is not something to feel guilty about. This is to say, God has given me so much, I want to I give back. And money isn't my savior, so I'm free to give it away. Now, some of you are very faithful in your giving, and I want to say that's amazing. Praise God that the Spirit of God has been faithful in your life. But I also want to challenge you. Consider growing in your giving. For whatever reason, this 10% thing got stuck in the church a long, long time ago. And I think it's helpful in some ways, but I also think it actually hinders a lot of people from giving. Because some people have been giving 10% for like 25 years. And I, sometimes I like to ask, has your faith grown in 25 years? Because if your faith has grown, then hopefully, again, your faith leads to action. Hopefully that will be reflected in, in your giving. The Spirit led my wife and I, when we first got married, to incrementally increase the percentage that we give. We try to do it every year regardless of what happens with our income. And we haven't been perfect, but we've, we've significantly increased the amount of money, that we, the percentage that we give by faith. Because we believe, like, God, God's got it. Secondly, I want to talk about giving to the poor. A few weeks ago, Leon's Crump was here from Atlanta, and he encouraged us to leverage whatever privilege we've been given for the sake of those who are in need. Leverage whatever privilege we've been given for the sake of those who are in need. Again, most of us, if not all of us in this room, are rich on a global scale, and we have a huge opportunity to be a blessing to other people who are in need. Now, I realize that there's not as much immediate physical need here on the east side as there is in a lot of other places, especially Tacoma. But I also want to say that just as my friends here in, in King County have a perception of Tacoma, right? And by the way, we are so good with you having that perception. That Tacoma is like a dirty, nasty place. Please keep believing that. It helps keep housing affordable. <laughs> but just as there are misconceptions about Tacoma, where I'm from, I know there's probably misconceptions about the east side, and I'm sure there is some physical, tangible need right around you. Okay? So be on the lookout for that. And if God gives you opportunity, please bless the poor who are in your midst. Beyond that, I want to encourage you to consider child sponsorship. My wife and I have been with Compassion International for many years, and it's a fantastic organization. World Vision does a good job with child sponsorship as well. That's a simple way, you know, $38 a month. You're helping sustain a child's life. They're connected to local church. That's, that's a small one. Like, I can't even, I mean, you, I can't take my four children out for lunch at taco time for $38. Right? And I can like, keep a kid alive for a month. Union Gospel Mission in Seattle, fantastic organization. Living Water International, they're helping bring uh, drinking water to people all over the planet, doing it in the name of Jesus, another fantastic organization. There's dozens and dozens of other great orgs that are doing fantastic work all around the world, helping alleviate the burden for the poor. 
So if we want to begin to pull up the weeds of deceitfulness of wealth, one specific way to do it is to give it away. And I want to ask you to look at the soil of your heart for a moment here. What is growing most prominently in the soil of your heart? See, we're all going to face temptations. We're all going to face temptations. But I think the question that the parable of the sower confronts us with is what dominates the soil of your heart? Because remember, the sower is trying to sow seed in a vacant lot filled with blackberry bushes. Is that what your heart looks like? Is it so overcome by the worries of the world, the concerns of the world, the desire for other things, the deceitfulness of wealth, that there's very little room for the Word of God to work in there and bear fruit? If that's the case, I have good news for you. God can change your heart. And the process to walk through to experience heart transformation is repentance and faith. And so repentance is looking at Jesus and saying, I trust you more than I trust in the deceitfulness of wealth. Wealth tells me I can trust it more than Jesus. I don't believe that. That's repentance, to change your mind about who or what is God. And then faith is to say, I'm going to step onto a new place called the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to build my life on that. Jesus tells a few more parables in Matthew 13 that I think summarize this, and we'll close with these. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. See, we can't grab a hold of Jesus, who's the king of this kingdom that he's talking about. See, kingdom is not just a place, it's a relationship. It's a way of life. We can't grab a hold of relationship with Jesus. We can't grab Jesus if our arms are filled with stuff. We can't grab onto Jesus if our hands are clenched tight to money. And these parables aren't saying you literally have to get rid of all your stuff. But they're saying the stuff, if the stuff has a hold on you, you need to release your hold on the stuff so you can grab a hold of Jesus, the pearl of great price, the one who is far more valuable than anything riches have to offer. That's repentance and faith. Experience the reality that Jesus and the Father through the person of the Holy Spirit are better than money. The security that Jesus offers is far greater than the false security that money can offer. The significance that Jesus offers is far greater than the foolish significance that money can offer. Moses Hogan was an African-American composer from New Orleans who died of a brain tumor in 2003 at the age of only 45. Many of his songs are reminiscent of old Afro-American spirituals. And one of his most well-known songs is called Give Me Jesus. And I'd like to close this morning by just singing a little bit, bit of that song for you. In the morning 
when I rise in the morning, when I rise in the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, examine our hearts. Peer in, look. Come with your gentle gardening glove clad hands to pull up the roots of these thorns that grow in our hearts. Free us from worry, free us from anxiety, free us from doubt, free us from fear. These other fruits that the thorns produce. Let the good news of the Father's miraculous provision of the Son. Let the miraculous news of the Father's loving presence free us. Free us from the deceitfulness of wealth. Free us to be generous and ready to share. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for your generosity to us. You paid a debt we could never pay. Thank you that we can trust you for our daily bread. In Jesus' name, amen.